0: Hello and welcome to American Podcast. On this episode, we talk with writer Jim Cornelius. Jim is an author, songwriter, and editor-in-chief of a small-town newspaper in the Northwest. Our conversation ranges from exploring the mixed cultures that exist on the edges of civilization to exploring his own observations on the frailty of modern society and how he believes localism to be the answer. Jim talks about his upbringing in Southern California and how Disney helped foster his fascination with the frontiers of the world. We discuss the influence of songwriters like Waylon Jennings and Steve Earle, and hear how Jim helped start the Sisters Folk Festival, which has become internationally known. I am proud to say that I worked for Jim as a freelance writer in my early 20s, and we remain friends via social media to this day. I've enjoyed reading his blog over the years at Frontier Partisans and look forward to reading his book in the near future. Without further ado, here's my conversation with writer Jim Cornelius. Well, I'm excited to have Jim Cornelius on American Podcast. Thanks for joining us, Jim.
1: Thanks for having me, Shane. It's a pleasure.
0: It's, it's an honor to have you on. You have a project called Frontier Partisans. You've written a book. You've um, edited a newspaper. You're a musician, a man of many talents. We're going to talk about your own story a little later, but first, tell me about Frontier Partisans, what that's about um, and the kind of the mission and the goal of that?
1: Well, the, the blog started in 2011 and it was sort of a, uh, a testing ground for a concept for a book. Like most journalists, I had dabbled in, uh, writing fiction and, uh, my background in history and in journalism kind of led me to be very inhibited whenever, uh, whenever I was trying to write historical fiction, whenever I started to get to a point where I sort of needed to bend the the facts as I knew them to suit the story, I would just freeze up. And, uh, there was a very distinct moment. I was out hiking in the woods here in, in sisters. And it occurred to me that, uh, the reason that I was running into problems is that probably I shouldn't be trying to write fiction, that I should be writing nonfiction. And, uh, there was a book that I, I read probably when I was 13, 14 years old called "Give Your Heart to the Hawks" by a guy named Winfred Blevins, and it was a uh, a nonfiction survey of the history of the mountain men, but it was told in a in a very vivid kind of rip roaring style, and I thought you know why don't you do that, except expanded beyond just, you know, one particular period and one particular geographical location. And, and that was the concept. And I thought, well, you know, I'll start off with a blog and see, you know, how I like writing this way and see if, if there's an audience for it. And turns out that there was, and I've been doing it, uh, gosh, it'll be nine years, which is hard to believe, but, uh, but that, that's the origin story of, of Frontier Partisans. I've always been interested in Frontier history since I was just a little kid.
0: Tell us about how that spark happened as a kid interested in the Frontier.
1: Oh, well, I grew up in, in the, the Frontier country of, of suburban Los Angeles, California. And I say that kind of jokingly, <laughs> but, but actually I kind of did. Um, Because uh, my parents had a cabin in in Wrightwood, California, which is in the Angeles National Forest. So, you know, I did spend a lot of time in the woods as a kid, even though I grew up in the in the concrete. Um, And heck, Los Angeles was a a frontier town, you know, after all. But uh, I don't know. You know, I was just one of those kids that I think the first time that I saw Walt Disney's Davy Crockett and the Daniel Boone TV series when I was a little kid, I was a goner. And that's a very common story amongst a certain generation of of people. I'm probably at the young end of the generation that got captivated that way. But that was kind of like the Star Wars of of a whole era. And and it just tripped a lot of triggers. And it tripped mine for sure. I uh, spent as much time as I could running around in the woods, which I still do to this day. Uh, It sparked a real interest in... um, in firearms particularly historical firearms and uh and history i just i wanted to know what really happened i wanted to learn more and uh that's been an insatiable appetite through my whole life um i continue to i I spend most of my my off time somehow immersed in in frontier history but i should Say for the the sake of, of your listeners that that aren't familiar with with what I do in particular, it's not just North America. I am interested in frontier conditions across the globe and across you know three four hundred years of history. So, North America, South Africa, um, Russia, Far East, um, it's Latin America. It's remarkable how much. Uh, you know, I, I refer to it as continuity and, and persistence. The the themes of frontier history play out over and over again in a whole bunch of different places, uh, pretty consistently, both in material culture and and you know politics and culture. And uh, I just find that fascinating. I, I love the comparative aspect of it. And I, my, as my daughter said in the Texas State Capitol, so that it echoed and everybody in there could hear it. You are such a nerd, and it's true. (laughs) I can't deny it.
0: So you ended up, uh, where did you go to college? Um, What did you study in college? And then where did you go after college?
1: Well, I went to school at UC Santa Cruz, uh, which is um, on the north end of Monterey Bay, beautiful place. I picked it for uh, a couple of reasons. One, it was a beautiful campus set in the Redwoods. uh, So I could literally uh, leave class and hit the woods. Like I said, that was always my thing. And the other reason was that uh, my girlfriend had been accepted to Berkeley and I wasn't quite, uh, well, I had the chops in, in the language arts to get into berkeley but i had a real hard time with algebra and i never quite got my scores to where where i could get into to berkeley so i had to settle for uc santa cruz and an hour and a half drive to see my girlfriend to everybody's surprise i studied history and uh my my thesis actually was uh tracing the the cultural uh was quite almost an american studies kind of of thesis but it was tracing the uh the parallels between uh, uh, frontier warfare and the development of American special operations warfare.
0: So you're kind of bridging modern special operations with the frontier wars or frontier experience. Yeah,
1: that, that manner, that manner of warfare, which started in uh, you know pretty early on in American history, where where the settlers adapted to uh, native fighting styles, uh, which, uh, you know, irregular warfare, small unit warfare. And there's a lot of parallels um, in um, between that and, and ongoing modern special operations. And there's also a big cultural imprint. And I actually focus quite a bit on the cultural imprint, um, which is, has been, has served us both well and poorly in the way we conduct our foreign policy and what we what we consider to be possible how so our outlook was shaped by by the frontier experience and we extended it beyond our shores and still are extending it beyond our shores and it's not as functional in uh, environments where we don't hold the demographic and and uh, preponderance and capability of actually pushing the the natives aside and settling on their land it's a different it creates a different environment so it's problematic but fascinating
0: is that kind of like the the expansionist um go west young man ideal or are you referring to something else
1: the concept of manifest destiny i think has morphed over time uh, I don't think that you know w- with a brief exception in the late 19th and early 20th century we have not attempted to have a, an overseas empire directly but we have have always projected power and force both hard hard power and soft power abroad and you know take for example the uh, the expansion of the conflict and the, the global war on terror from a uh, forward defensive, type of action to uh, both avenge and, and prevent another 9-11 into uh, an actual regime change effort in Iraq, the, the, man, the, manifest, the manifestation of Manifest Destiny there was that we were going to, to liberate this country and give them the blessings of American-style liberty. And uh, you know anybody who studied the history could have and did. Uh, tell you that that's not a viable strategy. It's not going to work, and it hasn't. Um, But I think that we're we're still culturally believing it because it did in the continental United States because we had a massive demographic advantage and we were actually going to take, you know, if if we had decided that we were going to take Iraq and and push the natives aside and settle it, we could have done it. It would have been a massive bloodbath. But we could have done it, but you can't you can't do the kind of frontier warfare in an environment like that forever and ever where you're outnumbered and you don't belong there you know it would be as though the, there were millions and millions and millions of, of Native Americans instead of the the much reduced population that, that the British colonies in the United States actually faced, but see we're going off into the weeds because I'm a nerd. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, since we're there, let's talk about it. Let's talk about um, the Native American experience in America um, in your estimation. Um, and kind of talk about that since we're kind of talking about that right now let's give us some context and um, what is your research and you know in the context of frontier partisans and maybe give me your your take on that.
1: Yeah, you know, my initial interest in frontier history, I had a very romantic conception of the the white American frontiersman going forth into the wilderness. And uh, yeah, I make no apologies for that, but uh, the scope of my interest has grown. And uh, what I've become most interested in is actually what I call the, the marginal men. Um, and there were also women who... who worked these margins as well, that were cross-cultural, either uh, of mixed race, um, various uh, European nationalities mixing with various indigenous nationalities, or just acculturated people. And that went in both directions. One of the things that you learn when you delve into this is that there wasn't really a culturally, a clearly demarked frontier. It was very porous, and there was a lot of cultural exchange, just as there is on borders everywhere across the world. And some of it was economic exchange, some of it was cultural exchange, and some of it was interethnic. And it was very robust for a long period of time, this sort of, of blending of cultures. And it went in both directions. And the people that sort of extruded themselves from that environment became cultural brokers between the native world and the encroaching European world. And their lives are, are fascinating, often tragic, um, most often tragic lives, actually, because they just ended up getting ground up in, in uh, that onward march of, of Euro-American civilization, um there just wasn't a place for them but it could have gone a different way and i and and i find that fascinating and there's whole especially in canada there's whole ethnic groupings like the metis that that uh um, were you know a blending of of scottish and french fur traders and native peoples that actually have their own separate cultural identity and that's become a real area of study for me and there's people like that in Africa and in uh the former Soviet Union and really all over and uh and also in Latin America and I just find that fascinating I I I love that aspect of history. So you're saying that
0: our idea of there was you know white Anglo-Europeans conquering the West and then there was Native Americans that were fighting them in that kind of black and white it's kind of a versus b story that there's actually a lot more gray area in that history that we really don't have an idea of as modern america
1: oh yeah it kind of what you're it's, saying? it's almost it's almost an unknown history and and a lot more of it than than we're aware of and, uh, you know, and, and the, the thing is that white America has for a good chunk of, of its history, been very uncomfortable with the story of mixed race people. Um, you know, we've kind of gotten over that in the past half century or so, and, and there's more interest and more knowledge of it, but, um, in any culture, anywhere, uh, people mingle and you can't, uh, you can't stop it, even in circumstances of of apartheid. You can you can make it illegal, you can make it dangerous, but people mingle, and uh, they did in along the the frontiers of America, all the way from the East Coast to the Mississippi and beyond the Mississippi. In what's now the American South, there was even greater mixture because you had indigenous tribal peoples, you had black slaves, you had White folks, you had and you had uh, a variety of Caribbean people that mingled quite extensively, and those those culture. I mean, and some of them formed distinctive cultures. There's enclave of people in the Georgia coast, and it's kind of broken down now, but they they had their own own dialect that uh, was a mixture of of African English and native tongues. And I just, I just love that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just, you said it's a gray area and I, and I know what you mean, but actually it's a colorful aspect of American history to me. It's just this melange of, of peoples. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's a great tragedy that those cultures, those subcultures have not really been allowed to flourish and their history is, is being lost.
0: I think that's one of the things I love about, I read your blog from time to time, Frontier Partisans. And one of the things I love about it is you pull out these stories that I've never heard of. And they're stories that you can make a feature film about. They're these heroic characters, these, you know, flawed characters that existed. And they're true characters throughout the frontiers of the world. And I find that fascinating.
1: I just love those stories. And I love kind of these wayward people. You know, they were by nature they were kind of unsettled folks because the squared away settled folks didn't venture out into these environments very much. They had they had steady steady jobs in civilized places.
0: What do you think? I've kind of often thought of the West Coast as the remnant of the Wild West, and the East Coast as the remnant of those who chose not to embark on the West. Because <laughs> I remember going to the East Coast as a child. And I was, I was in Virginia and I couldn't believe how orderly everyone was, um, like everyone. And then, and then when I went to Los Angeles, I worked there for a little bit and I worked in the entertainment industry, but I would show up at 8am and no one was at the office. Um, and people would roll in about nine or 10 and, and it was just this complete difference between East coast and West coast and the West coast mentality of like, yeah, we'll get the, we'll get the job done, you know, chill out, man. And, uh. Yeah. Do you, do you sense that at all, that we have kind of a frontier mentality of sorts on the West coast?
1: Of of sorts and in pockets and in certain ways, Um, you know, and again, my, my attraction to the wayward and the ardent hearted, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine um, a couple days ago and you know, one of the things that was attractive to me about Oregon is that it had a reputation as being a place where the the cowboys smoked weed and the hippies packed guns, which is kind of, like, perfect for me. <laughs> the the whole Willie Nelson uh, blending of, again, that blending of worlds, right? And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that we're, we've still got that. Um, there's so much polarization now, and, and people... Uh, planting flags of, of identity that, uh, that sort of orient themselves around politics. I think that that's really unfortunate and you lose that almost lose the ability to have that cultural blending. To me, that was the aspect of the West coast that was really wild West and, um, and California had it too. Um, very much so. Um, I think it gets, it, it, the identity politics thing that i just identified uh makes it difficult and also it kind of gets gentrified out you need you need to have people who are 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 doing dirty jobs for a living um have that kind of culture
0: yeah what is for some reason i thought of the eagles album when you were talking about that yeah desperado is that kind of the era that you came from
1: uh, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not confined much to a particular era. I'm, I'm pretty interested in, in, uh, 18th century through mid 20th century. Um, and then okay. of course, you know, contemporary manifestations, but yeah, you know, I wrote a piece not too long ago. I don't know if you read it or not, but I, a defense of, of desperado because a lot of my Americana music, uh, aficionado friends kind of like are snobby about the Eagles because I think they were too popular for them or something. But that was a great album. Great yeah. album.
0: Have you seen the Netflix documentary on them?
1: I did. Yeah. Marilyn and I watched that and it was fascinating. Started <laughs> sort <of> disturbing too. <laughs> I, mean, I always <laughs> thought that Glenn, I, I thought that Don Henley was kind of, kind of the asshole of the Eagles. And now I'm not sure if it wasn't Glenn Fry, the dangers of ambition, I guess. Right. But it was a great
0: yeah. film. Yeah, I, I had a newfound. I love the Eagles growing up, um, and then watching that, I just had a newfound respect for them, like what they accomplished as a band, and it's incredible. Um, and then yeah, their songwriting.
1: Yeah, the songwriting was was amazing. I mean, you know, and and as a songwriter, I can really appreciate some of the stories, you know, and then um, you know, Fry saying that he learned learned discipline by living upstairs from Jackson Brown and just hearing him work all the time and it is work you know it's 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 not all inspiration and and I love that bit where where Fry was talking about being in a bar and seeing you know a bar where all the uh the the women went to kind of pick up sugar daddies and and somebody saying, "Look at her lion eyes," and him thinking, "Oh, that's the song," and you know, I, I, that's that's cool.
0: That that struck me the fact that you know that those songwriters from that era were so close to each other. You don't think about that, but a lot of times, a lot of those people were close to each other.
1: One of the things in that documentary that that was really striking is how important Linda Ronstadt was to all of that. I mean, no Linda Ronstadt, no Eagles. You know, they came together yeah. to 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 back her. And, uh, and boy, was she a talent. Whew.
0: Tell me about your own, uh, your own music, your own experience with music. And I know you've worked with the Sisters Folk Festival and you have your own band. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, the music, uh, uh, really does tie in with the, with the rest of it. It's all pretty integrated. Um, I, uh, pretty early on discovered a love for, uh, for folk music and country music that, that was, storytelling. I came to music m- through lyrics and voice first. That's my, that's my entry point. And, uh, you know, it connected really strongly with, with interest in history. I remember, uh, having a, a record, uh, Johnny Cash record called Apache tears where he did a whole bunch of songs about, uh, about the Indian experience including his, his version of the ballad of Ira Hayes. And, and, you know, I just, th- I ate that kind of stuff up when I was, was young. And then, you know, when I hit my teens, I discovered Waylon Jennings and he sort of remains the hub of my musical wheel because he had, hmm. he had such a, uh, a broad, you know, if, if you just know his hit songs, you don't really know, um, the full picture of, of him as a musician. Uh, and he, loved songwriting and songwriters and and i discovered all kinds of songwriters because waylon jennings recorded their songs and uh but i you know I, i dug that outlaw mystique and and the eagles thing the desperado album fit right in there with that i just yeah that 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 to me was was super cool the the whole hat and boots and guitar slinger thing was uh and and i'm still infatuated with it what can i say (laughs) <laughs> so my, my, my own music is is uh, probably would be categorized as americana now uh it has absolutely nothing to do with what passes for country music now and as you noted i i was involved right from the, the get-go with the Sister Spoke festival so it's kind of you know folk americana but uh yeah i, I have a band that uh Mostly playing during the summer for larger gigs, and then uh, then my buddy Mike Biggers, who's a great songwriter and and excellent guitarist. Uh, we we play as a duo mostly uh, year round.
0: What's the name of those projects?
1: Well, uh, the the band is uh, is the Anvil Blasters, and that is we took that name from our banjo player is a blacksmith, and we took that from the old. Uh, holiday American tradition of blasting an anvil uh, as high as you could in the air, you know, packing the, the cavity at the, the base of the anvil with black powder and setting it alight, light. And you could blow an Where anvil that pretty come? high up in the air.
0: Where did that come from?
1: Uh, well, you know, people were doing it through, you know, probably as soon as they invented gunpowder, somebody <laughs> had the bright idea of blowing an anvil up into the air, um, you know, and alcohol was often involved. But you could go to YouTube and, and Google blasting the anvil or blowing the anvil, as they called it. And there's tons of tons of videos of people shooting anvils up in the air. Also, shooting the anvil is another term for it. So anyway, I saw a picture of this in, in, uh, in Jeff Wester's office at his forge here in Sisters. And we said, oh, that, that'd be a great band name. So that's, that's the band name. And Mike and I have been basically just gone by our names, but we've taken to calling ourselves the Royal Hillbillies lately.
0: And you enjoy that? You enjoy going out and playing music? Oh, yeah, I
1: love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't have any uh, any ambitions with it in particular other than, than just doing it. We just play locally a little bit, you know, mostly in Sisters, mostly out uh, at Black Butte Ranch and a little bit uh, in, in Bend Redmond. But, uh, yeah, just love to Love to play music for the the people. We've got a little following, and it uh, digs it. And and we probably play you know half original and half covers, you know, just songs that we love. And Mike and I kind of have simpatico musical heroes, musical tastes. Both love Guy Clark and Towns Van and Steve Earl and and those guys. You know, the Texas the Texas songwriters. So we we have that in common, and, and we both both sing, both play, and both write. So yeah, fun. Can you talk to me
0: about the Sisters Folk Festival and what it's like to, I guess, be at the starting stages of a folk festival, and what is it like to, to help operate a folk festival and make that happen year round?
1: Well, it's uh, you know that it's amazing to me when I look back over the history of the festival. It started in 1995. I was working at a bookstore here in Sisters, and the owner of the bookstore and I shared an interest in you know acoustic music. And we thought it'd be fun to have a music event that would, uh, you know, sisters being a tourist town, it kind of rolled up, uh, rolled up the sidewalks at Labor Day weekend and went to sleep for several months. And, and as a business owner, he thought it'd be great to have something that would add to the shoulder season. And so we did this kind of one day, small one day event. And, um, back in 1995 with, um, local and and regional, musicians, and people dug it and enjoyed it, and and so we kind of kept on with it, and it really caught on. Um, Part of the reason that it caught on so big is that we included a music and educational outreach program in the schools called the Americana Project, and so that kind of tied the schools to it, and the community became invested in it. And just over the years, it really has grown. There's 11 venues now. It's a, it's a three-day festival, or, you know, it has been. It's not going to happen this year, I'm sure. I'm no longer directly involved with it. Um, they haven't canceled it yet because of COVID, but the guidelines that we're, we're hearing now would preclude doing, doing the event as, as it has been done but it's become a big thing and, and, you know, international reputation and really beloved by the artists. One of the things that we did right from the beginning was we made sure that it was a really good experience for the artists, you know, for songwriters, it's a listening crowd and for rave up bands, it's a dancing crowd. You know, it's a really engaged audience and, and the artists really enjoy coming here. And of course it's, you know, it's a beautiful place. You know, we, we try to make them, feel at home and, and very welcomed here. So it's got a good reputation and I'm really proud of all that. You know, I didn't do it by any means by myself. I did provide some leadership for it for a number of years, but, but, you know, like any other enterprise that has legs, it's a whole bunch of people that, that have really bought into the, the mission and purpose and are committed to it and are carrying it on. And like I said, I'm not really directly involved at all anymore. And, you know, it still carries, carries on and gets better and better all the time.
0: Are there any notable years or performers or performances that stand out to you?
1: From my own personal experience of the festival, we've had uh, a few heroes here. Um, the second year we had Guy Clark and Ian Tyson as headliners and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I drank back then and, and, uh, and so I stayed up all night uh, in a hotel room drinking and playing music with Guy Clark, which um, you know that, that was uh, that was quite an experience for me. I mean, you know, he was a, he's he was a hero uh, to me at the time, and and so getting to do that was was great. Um, having Dave Alvin here, Tom Russell, um, and being able to you know spend some time interacting with these artists whose music means a great deal to me just last year uh we had a canadian band called le vent du nord um which is probably really shitty french canadian sorry but uh their sort of lead instruments are hurdy gurdy which i love and they the, almost all of their music is is in in french they are from quebec and they just absolutely blew the doors off and I love that you know because it's you know here's this this crowd of people that they're all you know it's all an anglophone crowd and and uh you know they didn't need they didn't need to understand the lyrics for it to come across and these guys are just they were just fantastic so that was a highlight um gosh there's a whole bunch of them i love celtic music and and we've had a, a few Celtic bands. The that, that Solas has performed here a couple of times, and and I love that band. They're an Irish band, and those were just really powerful performances. They could go from really poignant, just tear your heart out stuff to uh, you know absolutely throwing down, thousands of people dancing on their chairs and stuff, and that's the kind of and and seeing people having that kind of experience is really the point for all of us who are involved in this i mean you know you just feel so gratified that you were part of something that brought so much joy to so many people
0: that's awesome i can attest to it i've been to the festival a number of times long time ago it's been a while but uh yeah I actually, get back. I re-
1: not this year obviously but you got to get back yeah you're still playing aren't you
0: yeah i've never played at the festival but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting back into it. I'm actually getting back into playing. I'm doing a thing on Facebook where I am uh, I'm relearning my songs on Facebook Live, and I'm inviting people to be a part of the process. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what you mean by that, too. <laughs> <laughs> and what, it, what it comes down to is I don't have time to um, – well, I can't tour. I can't play gigs, and I don't have time to even rehearse, really, because I'm so busy with other things but I have the heart to do it and people are asking me to do it. So I just decided I'm going to, if I have time, I'm just going to hit go live on Facebook or Instagram and just play for about a half hour. And literally the last three times I've done it, I've pulled out song sheets and I, and I say to the camera, I'm like, this is the first time I played the song in three years. Um, and it's, it's amazing. And the, the, the crazy thing is I remember the songs. My voice remembers the, the melody. And it feels effortless, like better than it did at one time. And it's kind of this thing where you like walk away from it, come back to it. I'm just having fun with it.
1: Yeah. That's really important. I mean, music is first and foremost, just that it should be fun. It should be solace and in troubled times and all of that stuff. And it should be shared. So yeah. I, think that's, that's, I think that's great. And let me ask you a question here. I, this is intriguing to me as you know, because I sometimes I dig dig out songs that I wrote, you know, twenty twenty five years ago now. Do you uh-huh. have songs that mean something different to you now than they did when you wrote them?
0: Yes, yes. Sometimes it happens half. I mean, that's that's always been that way actually. Um, and sometimes I'll be playing a song and I'll see a face, and then it just a whole different meaning comes to me. Or I'll be halfway through a song and then something hits me about the lyric, and I'm like, I might start crying. <laughs> because it hits me it hits me in a different way um yeah so that does happen and yeah definitely is is that happening for you
1: oh sure yeah and it's and and it's a, a wonderful but kind of unsettling experience because you know it kind of forces you to realize that that you're a different person than the person who wrote the song um yeah it's still your song but yeah, it's, a, it, it's, it's an odd, mostly pleasurable feeling. But like you say, it can be, it could be an emotional feeling too, because, you know, you stack a lot of living experience on, you know, since you wrote it, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a deeper meaning to it, or, uh, you know, something more profound about it, or, you know, and it doesn't happen with unless the songs are good. So it's also gratifying to think, man, you know, I wrote that 25 years ago and it still holds up. That's pretty cool.
0: I think that's the, the testament to good songwriting too, is if it has the ability to do that. I think it was T.S. Eliot who said, I'm going to butcher this quote, but I think he said something to the effect of a poem happens anew every time it's read because the person who's hearing the poem is different. It's a different Context every single time that it's read, um, and that was my interpretation of it. And yeah. I kind of think of that with songs.
1: I think it's true. Yeah, and 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 yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that you know old songs can uh, can be powerful for a, a listener too, because you know you come back to it with a different set of experience and a different context. And so you know, it's it, the poem is is a new even though you've heard it fifteen thousand times on the radio. You know, there's books that I've read multiple times, but you can't read a book a thousand times. You're just not going to do yeah. it. You can hear a song a thousand times if you love the song, and it's still going to pack power for you. And that's that's a that's a gift from music.
0: I think one thing too that's really occurred to me is is music is when I was younger, it was just like a wall of noise, and it was fun to listen to. And I never actually listened to lyrics when I was like younger. And then now that I listen to it, like, I think it's because I have a new understanding of how music works, but I can hear all the different instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when I, when, I, when I listen to 80s music now, especially, I hear how simple it is. Um, I think when I was younger, I thought that this music was really complex and just it was like, you can never achieve that music. And now I listen to music from the 80s and I'm like, that's just a synth and a bass and like a, a drum. <laughs> and a singer like you can and it's probably remastered too i'm probably hearing remastered recordings but that's something that's occurred to me is just how simple some of the greatest music is it's when you really look at it it just the melody the counter melody the rhythm um is very simple but it works very well
1: i think that that has the most the most staying power you know to me that is is the simplicity of course you know i'm drawn to to music forms that are simple i mean you know you you uh there's nothing particularly musically sophisticated about uh about uh you know your your three chords and the truth but uh yeah yeah it it it, it stays with you and there are songs i was just telling Marilyn uh, not too long ago that uh you know i've, I've listened to steve earl's copperhead road I've, i i can't imagine how many times i've i've heard that song and i play it virtually every set we do and I still get goosebumps every time I hear the song, the hair goes up on the back of my neck when that's at the intro of that song every time. And that's, you know, that's a remarkable accomplishment. Yeah. By the art, you know,
0: it's amazing that there's these songwriters, um, you know, like the Texas songwriters, I mean, just right there, but there's so many songwriters and artists that mainstream culture has no clue who they are. And yet they've affected some of the most poignant artists of the last few generations. I don't know how many of our listeners actually know who Steve Earle is. It's like that subculture idea of there's the mainstream culture, the mainstream story of America. um, And then there's the subculture that's been kind of there and it exists. And it fascinates me that you have these artists who are able to make a living and sustain themselves and stay off the radar but they can tour, they can record. They have a very successful career, they're very respected, but the, they may never be known by mainstream America. It goes along with your frontier partisan idea of you know these stories that mainstream America isn't aware of, but it's just this colorful reality of what America actually is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it it definitely is a similar a similar thing and you know as far as the the frontier stories, it drives me nuts that you know, like the history channel and, and, you know, other cable entities, they'll, they'll do series about the same people, different series about the same people over and over. I mean, you got Wyatt Earp, you got Billy the kid, you know, you know, and, and there are so many other stories that are frankly richer and more interesting than, than that. But, you know, that, you're not going to find them on on cable tv because they want name recognition they want you know they want you to tune in because you've heard that name before where you find the other kinds of stories is in the world of podcasting that's where the non mainstream stories start to get told which is fantastic i mean i'm glad somebody's doing it and podcasting is kind of a a return to oral storytelling and uh You know, you can do it the way we're doing it and have two guys talking and or an interview kind of situation. Or you can you can have one guy, one of my favorite history podcasts, is a guy named Dan Carlin, who has a podcast called Hardcore History. And it's excellent history. It's extremely well done as history. But he considers himself not a historian, but a historical storyteller. So he, he spins these stories out in such an effective way. And these podcasts are long. They're like three-hour podcasts. And you don't want them to be over. And he's digging into, you know, we, when you've got that kind of time in that kind of format, you can dig into all kinds of interesting characters and side stories. And you don't have to worry about, you know, whether people know who who it is, the people that you're talking about are going in. And I think, you know, that's one of the, the advantages of the digital revolution. You know, music-wise, yeah, there's no musical consensus anymore. And everything's a niche. But if you, if you are hungry for good music, you can find it. And you can find, and it's easy to find artists. That If you like Shane Simonson, well, you try, try this artist. You're going to like, you know, because of the algorithms. I think that's sure. a really great, I think that's a wonderful thing. I love
0: that. It's fascinating, you know, how it came. Because my my generation kind of came up, like, when I was in college, MP3s was a thing. And you're downloading, like, hundreds of songs onto your computer. It was like this outlaw thing. Oh,
1: yeah, Napster and all that. Yeah, right.
0: And so, like, I kind of came up, like, in that to watch the industry. It was basically being dismantled, you know, like, with Quentin Tarantino and the indie movement. So I was kind of in that era of like, everything was being dismantled from the golden age and then rebuilt. Um, and I think that's where we're at is, uh, I remember hearing Ana DeFranco say she wanted, she didn't want to be a millionaire musician. She's like, I want to be a middle-class musician. I want to make enough to get by and go out and tour. And like that idea was so foreign to me. I was like, well, you're a musician. You have to live in a gold castle and, and drive in a limo. Like that's what, what musicians do. Right. Like when she said that she, 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 wanted to just be a middle-class musician. I was like, that's not a real thing. Like either you're a musician or you work a nine to five job. You can't be both. And so I think now we're sitting in this amazing world where I have a podcast, you know, and I'm sitting here talking to an amazing person sharing that story. You know, I can go live on Facebook with my music and it
1: can, it can be horrible. horrible,
0: you know, and my, my mom could enjoy it or not enjoy it. Um, and there's so much access Whereas before you had to kind of play the game to get past the gatekeepers. Now it's just, there is so much access um, to stuff. And I think we're, the industry is finding a way to make money off it on one end, but then us as consumers have to find a way to kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost like a wild west of content, if you will, of we're having to find where that content is and find ways to organize it or sort it out or what am i going to listen to i don't know
1: there's there's upsides and downsides to it you know it it is you have your own radio show now and you can reach people all over the world with with this podcast Uh there you know and and that that is a a tremendously liberating thing and you know it you have to to struggle a bit to because you're in this you know giant sea of content now you have to to, to do things in order to, to get noticed if you want to get noticed. You know, musicians can, can uh, produce their own their own music. There's none of this studio control. I mean, you know, I mentioned Waylon Jennings earlier, and you know, one of the reasons that he was a hero was that he kind of broke the national studio system. Well, you know, yeah. now anybody can, you know, his thing was he wanted to use his own musicians, his own band, choose his own material and that was not done in 1960s, early seventies, Nashville. Well, you know, now you can, you can set up in your living room and do whatever the hell you want. Um, The problem is that there's no money in recorded music for the artists anymore. And that's, that's tough. I mean, we've seen that with the folk festival, not too many years ago, you could negotiate a fee with an artist and be able to say, look, you know, you're going to sell, all the CDs you bring. So bring a ton of the CDs. Well, that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, they're making all of their money on touring and, you know, it's hard on them because they've got to stay on the road because it's the only place they're making any money. Um, and you know, if you're just a songwriter and don't really have, uh, performing capabilities, trying to make a living off of royalties is, <laughs> that ain't going to happen. So, know that's the downside i think we got as consumers we got to recognize that if we want good art we got to be willing to fork over something for it i mean we we used to think nothing of paying 10 15 20 bucks for a cd now we want everything for free
0: talk to me about um you have a podcast is that correct
1: Yes. yeah or you haven't actually produced one for uh a couple of months um because we're moving our studio and then this covid thing happened but yeah my friend uh and co, uh, co-conspirator Craig Roman and I have a podcast, the Running Iron Report podcast, available on Podbean, and uh, that's part of a of a broader project that that is built around another another blog that's kind of thematically related to the Frontier Partisans thing, but it's a little bit of a different take. We're kind of trying to figure out how to to walk in in the world now that the uh, the empire is, is uh, unraveling and we were seeing the signs of this four or five years ago. And now, you know, now we're seeing, now we're seeing it really happen. It's coming apart and trying to figure out what you, what you do when you, it's hard to believe in institutions anymore. Um, when, uh, you know, the underpinnings that, that we've built, put our faith in as a civilization are starting to get creaky that's kind of the theme that we're operating off of. So
0: as we sit in the midst of um, quarantine and virtual police state on the West coast, um, what are your thoughts on all that coming from, you know, having researched this and, and look at these things?
1: Well, I think that the, that it's showing uh, some of the, the, the fractures in our, our society, our institutions don't function particularly well from the healthcare system to our political and governmental institutions you know everybody is rightly praising the frontline healthcare workers um, as they should but mm-hmm. the system that that they're working for um, and working under is uh, is pretty badly disheveled you know and, and is probably not fixable i don't think we've got the political will to actually do things that 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 could improve it because it becomes a political football just like everything becomes a political a, a really hyper-partisan political football now. And that's destroying all kinds of, of institutions. You know, I, we could spend a whole, a whole session talking about nothing but this, but it really boils down to, I think that, that the extremes of identity politics really breaking down, we're, we're seeing a, a, a pretty large scale social breakdown, and the, the you know failure of the education system um, to teach critical thinking and to teach uh, civic literacy. I mean, you know' we, we've got we're, we're seeing here some interesting things because it, 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 it seems to me and to a lot of people, I'm sure, that it's entirely possible to recognize that this COVID virus is a real thing and a real problem. And, you know, a a highly contagious, moderately dangerous virus that has no immunity and no cure and no vaccine for it's going to cause problems. And also that shutting down the society and the economy for, who knows, an indefinite period of time, apparently, um, is... Toxic and dangerous in and of itself, and like you say, danger, you know, dangerous—you to, know—dangerous to constitutional liberties. Because once people with an authoritarian bent get a taste of it, they start looking around, you know, for like a hammer, looking for other nails to pound. And it's possible to be concerned about all of these things and not choose to either believe that the disease is a hoax or that it's worth any price to try to make us completely safe from a virus that's not going to go away. I mean, neither one of those positions is a tenable position in, in my estimation. We've got to have some reasonable way of mitigating the impacts of the public health impacts of the disease and living with it probably for an extended period of time and maybe forever if there's no, no – Uh, vaccine available and you gotta have some kind of of, uh, social cohesion to be able to do that I don't think we have it
0: that's kind of that's what I've noticed is almost a perfect storm it was as we're going into an election year you know maybe one of the most divisive election years in history for America I mean there's been plenty of those but this one's up there we're going into that and then this happens (laughs) um and exactly what you're saying. We, we seem fractured as a nation. Um, and then when we hit, we face something like this. Like, how do we come together to, to face it? And it seems like the, the solutions that are presented to us are dividing us, which is interesting. I think back to World War II in Chamberlain. And I don't know if I'm completely off base here, but I think of England. Um, and Chamberlain was kind of like a Nazi sympathizer and there was a lot of Nazi sympathizers in England, and then there were those who were not, and they were against it. And you had like, before England entered the war, there was this very much a, you know, a back and forth polarity in England. But then once they were at war with Germany, then they were solidified and they had a common enemy to be against.
1: And a similar process occurred in in the United States, and and it's always easy to oversell the idea that we're more divided than we've ever been. I mean, you know that that's manifestly not the case. We had a civil a, a, a four year shooting civil war. Um, I will will say I, I think it's it's inaccurate to say that Chamberlain was a Nazi sympathizer. There were Nazi sympathizers in in England, uh, uh, especially in the upper classes, a fair number of them. Chamberlain was just so desperate to avoid war that that he adopted the the policy of, of appeasement. I think that the, the most telling thing that Chamberlain ever said is the the, the British people aren't going to go to war. And in, in, this was in the Munich settlement when Czechoslovakia was was at stake, and he said, "We're not going to go to war for people that live far away and of which we know nothing." That that was illustrative of his attitude. But, you know, broadly speaking, I think you're, you're correct. Once the shooting started, there was a certain sense of unity and we've all got a, a job to do and let's get let's get on with it. And we're not seeing that much here in in the face of this of this virus. And, you know, frankly, that's that's partly down to a, a lack of of national leadership. You know, I haven't heard any any kind of resolve coming out of the White House that you would want to hear from. a a leader who was dealing with a, a, you know, a a profound crisis. You're not going to hear any tones of of FDR, whether you like FDR or not, the guy could speak to the people and make them feel a sense of purpose. That's, that's lacking here.
0: From the running iron report perspective, what do you guys see as the next step or the next stage in something like this? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, our focus, you know, we, we have long believed that looking to political saviors is a is, is a false hope. The idea that if we can just elect the right people to office, that things will be better is a false hope. And I think that we're looking at that now. I mean, you know, I, I did not vote for either of the two major party alternatives in 2016. Um, I won't be voting for one of the two major party alternatives in 2020 because, I mean, Joe Biden is has never been more than a than a mediocre political hack, and I truly believe that that he is has lost a step. Let's put it charitably and say that. Um, I don't think that he is capable of doing the job, and uh, you know we can just. Stipulated to the various hypocrisies that that exist on both sides of the political aisle, I don't believe that anything is salvageable based on choosing between one of the two parties in in the two party system. And our Mm. focus has been we're not going to make it go away. You or I or my friend Craig or any of us can't have virtually zero influence. Uh, any higher level than a county level. And so our focus has been on localism and trying to be part of building robust and resilient communities. I don't think that we believe in solutions per se. Um, This is a a coping mechanism, a means of dealing with the realities that, that exist. You know, buying local, buying your food from local producers whenever possible being part of and building up local institutions you know obviously we're all affected by by national politics there's no question about it but we cannot affect those national politics so working locally is the only answer that we've got it that 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 feels like a valid course and a a valid way of life for us as individuals not saying it's Mm going to fix anything or even change anything but it's a it's a better way of being and that's kind of what we're seeking
0: i love that to me that's kind of the american idea Uh, i mean there's a lot of american ideas but the one that resonates with me is the idea of to me that's what the small town is about as a self-sustaining community that can take care of their own um whether that's spiritually you know physically or what have you um a self-sustaining system you know economic system And I love the idea of having farms that can provide for that community. And it's interesting. I feel like as we stretch out into globalism, there's opportunities for small community localism. Um, Like There's these opportunities for um, gardens in a box where you can have a hydroponic farm. That's like a a shipping container that has all the elements you need for a farm. Drop it onto a community um, and you can grow a farm right there. And so it's this interesting thing where I, I feel like we're becoming globalist and yet we're, we are becoming more localist. I don't know, do you see that at all?
1: I do. I think that that's, that's actually, that's spot on. And I think that, that one of the things that, that we need to really emphasize in coming out of this epidemic is recognizing that we need to be really mindful about those things that we need to to invest in them, both in terms of, you know, not just financially, but in terms of, of our time and our energy and, you know, where are we going to spend our, our efforts? One of the reasons that I intensely dislike national politics and try to really stay away from it as much as I can is that, that it actually tears at the fabric of those small towns where you know, I, I have seen in, in sisters in the past few years divisions in the community that have nothing to do with our everyday lives and who we are as people, but who people identify with on the national political stage. And to me, that's a crime. We should not be judging each other or or determining how we relate to each other on this local level by red or blue and who we voted for for president, you know, because whoever you voted for, for for president, we have many, many common interests and requirements here locally that we can work on together. A perfect example of it is that the, the local homeless shelter, a friend of mine was working there and there were people there that were hardcore right-wing Republican voters of, of an evangelical Christian bent. And a couple of very lefty, hippie-type folks who probably spend an inordinate – oh, I know for a fact one of them spends an enormous amount of time on uh, Facebook <laughs> posting memes about Trump. But lo and behold, they were both there trying to help homeless people in the community. They were providing food to these folks together. Their politics didn't matter. didn't matter who they voted for for president. That was irrelevant, and it should be irrelevant. And the more you allow it to become an issue locally, the worse off we're going to be. And I, I really feel, you know, you probably hear it in my voice. I feel very passionately about that. I don't want to see that happen to this community or other communities.
0: I love that. I don't want to get away without talking about your book. You, do you feel up for talking about your book at all?
1: It's uh, titled Warriors of the Wildlands, True Tales of the Frontier Partisans. I did publish it independently, so that kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with with music. Very similar thing in publishing. I made a conscious decision that I would make it available exclusively either through me directly or through Palina Springs Books in Sisters. You can order, you know, people can order that online from Palina Springs Books in Sisters and just as readily as they can from Amazon. And Paul Paulina Springs gets a heck of a lot more out of it than Amazon and they need it more, especially right now. So that was, that's my kind of effort at uh, to walk in the walk in terms of localism. And the book is a series of 12 biographies of frontier partisans from North America, South Africa, Latin America, and Canada. Uh, well, North America, Canada, as well as the United States. And, uh, yeah, you know, I just did my best to tell true stories, accurate stories about people that most folks have never heard of in as vivid and engaging a style as I possibly could. And I'm almost sold out. <laughs> so I guess it went OK. It's been, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of working on the next concept. And, you know, I was just it, it was always an ambition of mine to to do this, to do something like this. And it was most gratifying to get that done.
0: Uh, Talk to me about being the editor of a small town newspaper, the the Sisters Nugget. Um, How long have you been there? Um, And what is it like to have that role of the editor of the only paper in a small town?
1: I started freelancing for the Nugget in February of 94. So I've been there for 26 years now. And uh, I've been the editor for about 20 years, more than 20 years now. Um, three years ago, the, the paper was purchased from not the original owner, but the, the owner for 30, 35 years and is under new ownership of uh, father and son who own multiple small newspapers, mostly in the Northwest. And so since, since that ownership change, I've been the editor-in-chief, which means that I'm responsible not just for the editorial end, but the, the running of the business of the newspaper you know, I have to say that the, the previous ownership that I was friends with the people and remain friends with the people that owned the nugget, that was a wonderful experience. The current owners are, uh, provide a great deal of support where appropriate and are completely hands off, um, in terms of the day-to-day operations and the editorial end of things. And, and so that relationship has been, uh, really outstanding and, and seamless. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think that anybody saw any changes in the nugget that, uh, that, um, weren't good changes. Um, you know, a lot of times when papers get bought out, they just, they get uh, rated basically for their assets and, and they dwindle and, and die. The owners, the current owners of the paper are very committed to print journalism and it shows. So that's, that's good stuff. Um, you know, what's it like to be the editor of the paper? It's, I, I am very gratified that I'm able to make my living with my pen. That's not an easy thing to accomplish in the world, and I'm happy to do it, you know, to be able to do it. I'm, I think that I've been able to have a positive influence in, in the community. And, uh, you know, what, what we love to do is to tell the stories of the multitude of remarkable people who live here work here and that's an honor and a privilege to be able to do that and uh and i think we do it well both uh in terms of of the writing the photography the design of paper everything that we present i think is is of high quality and uh you know the the i if there are downsides to it it's you know you're you're sort of never off um, and uh you can be a bit of a lightning rod, and everybody wants you to to you know to fix things for them if they if they think that they're out of out of line or if they don't understand something they'll call you up and want you know an explanation of it, which you know mostly that's a good thing, but sometimes it can get to be a you know it could be a bit burdensome but mo- you know mostly it's a pretty cool gig it really is you know you feel like you you feel like you've done what I like about it is that every week there's products, you know, that you can hold in your hand and say, yeah, that's good. You know, that's a good piece of work. And, uh, and feel like it, it has value. And, you know, we're told often that people appreciate the work. So, you know, that's, you can't, you can't ask for more than that. Really.
0: Sister strikes me as kind of a good example of what localism might look like, um, in America has living in sisters affected your viewpoint on what localism means? Have you affected sisters on what localism means? Um, And if there's anyone listening to this podcast and they want to find ways to kind of pursue what localism is or um, to pursue local community in their own way, do you have any advice for them?
1: Well, I don't know if, if I've got advice, I mean, the way things have played out for myself and my family. Um, the community gave us opportunities that we took advantage of to have an impact um, and do cool and interesting things. Um, founding a folk festival here um, was part of that. You know we wanted to have music and so the people that, that you know have live music in the community, so the people that valued that just went and did it. Um, we made it happen, and we wanted to make sure that that it wasn't just a three-day party, but that it that it that it really gave something back to the community. So we did that. Um, you know, just getting together with like-minded people, and um, you know, again, like-minded people who may have whole areas of their of their life and their outlook that are different from yours, but you have this, this area in common, pull together and, and, and work to each other's strengths and, and build something, build something that, that gives value back to the community. It's as simple as that, you know, and I've been fortunate to, you know, I have a a certain level of influence um, and the ability to have influence with my pen as the editor of a newspaper really tried to encourage that uh that local economy you know it's in my interest to do so because all of our advertisers of course are you know they're local businesses so uh, partly uh that's enlightened self-interest i would say but i do really believe that you're you know it's way better to to shop from a local mom and pop than to to sit and, and poke the the order button on your amazon account and uh you know and i've really tried to hold the door against that polarization allowing that uh, national polarization to seep down into the local community and poison the well you know it has done to to some degree i've just tried to bend my writing ability and the platform that i have to reminding people that none of that really matters when you get down to the the brass tacks and that we're all members of the same community and and need to have each other's backs those are the things that that i've done i think that there are things that we can all do wherever we are to whatever degree works in our individual lives and i think that we, we benefit from it and the more time and energy we spend on on building those constructive things and the less we spend on time-wasting stuff and 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 stuff is just kind of is toxic. You know, the happier we are as individuals. So that's that's my sermon.
0: That's great. Can I uh, – so where where can we find Jim Cornelius online where you want to be
1: found? Uh, FrontierParsons.com, RunningIronReport.com, NuggetNews.com. I'm on Facebook commenting on Shane's posts. Shane's commenting on my post. <laughs> indeed it's civil and enlightening it's not like normal facebook it's not it's not just stupid snark it's actually you know worthwhile
0: (laughs) it's true i find facebook as a mission it's my mission to to have civil conversation in the midst of the storm of facebook well
1: you're pretty good with that you know you're pretty good with that and sometimes you know you and you don't you don't rise to the bait when somebody uh goads you in the comments and that's that's the key right there is you just don't you don't dig into that stuff that's encouraging
0: yeah i i find it as my wife will i'll be on my computer on my laptop and i I get this look in my 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 wife walks by and she's like oh you're you're commenting on facebook aren't you and i was (laughs) like yes i'm saving the world (laughs) one comment at a time
1: (laughs) he's got that fire in his eyes
0: yeah yeah, well, you know that's, that's
1: my, all the social media stuff is is has got its uses. You just have to make sure you're running it and it's not running you.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I've truly found that like I haven't been writing much, but I think Facebook is my creative outlet. It was through Facebook and the commenting and having these huge conversations with people that at the end of the day we're laughing at each other and you know we completely disagree, but we come to consensus. And I was like. I could do a podcast and that's honestly what kind of initiated my thought of doing a podcast. And while this podcast is in no way meant to have those kind of conversations, this is just meant to document stories. That was where I realized, you know what? Like I think I, I think people that have a similar approach to me of not trying to create discord, but try and bring consensus and peace. I think there's a place for that in the world. And I want to contribute to that.
1: I absolutely sanction the mission and, and uh, I think that you're doing good work.
0: I encourage anyone out there that resonates with that to do that in your own small world of bringing consensus. Kind of like what Jim was saying of, you know, find common projects that we can work towards to build our communities and not focus on the things that, that tear us apart. As I get on my soapbox, which I'm trying not to do on this, but that's a nice soapbox, I think.
1: that's a a good soapbox absolutely you should you should wrap her up on that that's that's what we all need to be doing
0: awesome well thank you so much jim for being a guest on american podcast
1: i was honored to be asked shane and, and i appreciate it thank you
0: thank you for joining us on this episode of american podcast once again make sure to subscribe leave a review find us on social media and share with all your friends Also, I have just started a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Shane Simonson. Your support is greatly appreciated as I share these stories. Until next time, this is Shane Simonson signing off.